This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Pastor Jerry Gillis. Pastor Gillis is the lead pastor at the chapel, a multi-complex church network in the Buffalo area, and as well is a leader in Christ Together, a network of local churches that band together to reach everyone in their city with the gospel. The church that the pastor leads is the largest evangelical church in New York State outside of New York City. And so it is such a delight and an honor, Pastor Gillis, to have you on The Rabbi's Husband. Mark, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks. Your chosen passage is Leviticus 19.1. So tell us what happens in Leviticus 19.1, or really what Leviticus 19.1 is about, and why is it so significant to you? Yeah, so Leviticus 19.1 and 2, I, maybe more formally, it says that the Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. I think the reason that it means so much to me is that, obviously, as a Christian, as you just noted, we both have a reverence for the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, and the New Testament. And in the New Testament, this phrase, be holy because I am holy, is repeated on a few different occasions, most specifically in First Peter. One of the apostles of Jesus, Jewish, of course, Peter kind of references that, but you know, so it kind of inspired me to look back into the Torah itself and understand better the idea of holiness. If God says, be holy because I am holy, then what are the ramifications for each of us in our lives, those of us who commit to seeking the truth and commit to seeking after God? What's so interesting to me about this is this precedes a restatement of the Ten Commandments, which is 19.3 on, and then a whole bunch of other highly specific rules after the Ten Commandments. You shall not be a gossip monger among your people. You shall not commit a perversion of justice. You shall not favor the poor. You shall not honor the great, on and on. So what's interesting to me is that it precedes these very specific commandments by saying you shall be holy, which leads one to ask, what's the point of all the commandments? Because if you're about to give all these rules and then you say you shall be holy, one might say, well, which is it? Like, should I follow the rules or be holy? When you fill out your tax returns, it doesn't say fill out what you think is right. It says, here are the exact rules. And I think this is just the genius of the Torah coming in saying, there are all these rules to follow and they're still not going to be enough because no set of rules, even those conceived by God himself, can possibly encompass all the choices and all the complexities of life. Yeah, I think that's a super interesting angle there, Mark, because when I started looking and chronicling the way that I said it is that God's holiness makes a claim on our humanness. Because what you're reading when you read through Leviticus 19 is he talks about respect for family, complete loyalty to God, generosity to the poor, honoring relationships, no exploiting people, particularly if you're a person of power, legal justice, loving your neighbors, sexual purity, rejection of the worldly and idolatrous, respect for the elderly, racial respect in verses 33 and 34 of chapter 19 fair trade in verses 35 and 36. So you're exactly right. He unpacks all of these statements of what the practical or the human implications of holiness 
might actually look like. And so the idea there for me is that I came back to, because I, I agree with what you're saying, it seems like uh, an overwhelming task potentially for a human being, right? But what I came back to is realizing that holiness, in the way that I would phrase it, is it's more essence than attribute. In other words, when God says, the Lord your God is holy, so be holy because I am holy, we have to figure out, like, what does that mean? What is the idea of God's holiness actually about? And so for me, it has to do much more with the idea of God being set apart from us. You know, the idea of the word holy actually means to be set apart. In the Hebrew, kadosh, sure. Exactly right. It can be set apart from or set apart to. And I think both of those are really important for even what I would call a New Testament understanding of holiness. Because here's kind of how I describe it, if I could use a little anecdote. I grew up in Georgia. And so I'm originally from the Southeast portion of the United States, metro Atlanta area. And the neighborhood where I grew up had a creek and a wooded area. And it was great. We would run down there like crazy when we were kids. And we had all of these paths that we would fly around on. And I could almost run those paths with my eyes closed. When I got back, I don't know, 25 years later, whatever it was, and I I decided I want to go down to that creek. And everything was grown over. It reminded me of the uh, Rudyard Kipling poem, uh, The Way Through the Woods, when he said, they shut the road through the woods 70 years ago, weather and rain have undone it again, and now you would never know there once was a road through the woods. And it's almost a reminder to me that when we talk about the idea of holy, it's like an old covered over path that we don't understand it. We don't even recognize it in our present culture. The only time we use the word holy is if we're saying like, holy moly, or you know, something like that, right? A way to emphasize something. Yeah, exactly. But understand conceptually what holiness actually is, because it's very important for us that are truth seekers who embrace the authority of the Torah, who embrace the authority of the scripture. When God says, I am holy, that's not something for us to be forgetful of. That's not something for us to think, ah, that's just kind of an archaic way or whatever. No, no, God said, I'm holy. But this is not about so much attribute because we hear God's attributes all the time. Love and long-suffering and kind and just, right? Those are his attributes. Holiness is his essence. In other words, he's set apart. So it is a holy love. It is a holy justice. It is a holy righteousness. So it's more essence than it is attribute, if that makes any sense. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And, and I think you're so right that the Bible would, the Torah would never say anything just for sentimental reasons. I mean, it wouldn't be like God's holy. He wouldn't say that. That's very nice. Let's sing a song about it. It's got to be <laughs> deeply meaningful because this is how he's defining himself. This is basically the preamble to the Ten Commandments. I'm holy. You should be holy. There's nothing sentimental about that. It's all actionable because God is telling us you shall be holy. And the reason why I think this is such a brilliant example the lawyers might call a catch-all phrase is let's say a, a child or an adult came to you and said, is it okay if I eat chocolate cake all day from when I wake up? You say, it's not prohibited in the Bible, so I guess I can. The only response we have is that would not be a holy way to live your day, right? And that's what God is saying. It's like everything you do should be infused with holiness. And I'm going to give you some specific ways to do it. Honor your parents. Don't commit adultery. Certainly don't commit adultery. But there's a lot that I'm not going to say just because I can't predict, but always be holy. So always ask yourself, is this act a holy act? And if one does it, if every choice you ask yourself, is this a holy act? You probably get some pretty good results. Yeah, I think you're onto something there. But one of the things that I thought about, and that's 
what you said, which I think is very insightful, sparked something as I was thinking about it. And that is that I think holiness by definition has to be about more than morality. It's not less than that, but it has to be actually more than that. Because if it means set apart, the idea of God being set apart, if he says that you are to be holy, just as I am holy, obviously he's not saying we can be God, but he's saying you're to act in this way, you're to be set apart, then it's an idea that our primary responsibility in life is to be set apart to God, that our lives are to be set apart to God, that we belong to him. Because when we look at the idea of holiness in the scriptures, it's used a gazillion times, right? It's used at least 85 times just in Exodus and Leviticus that I kind of looked up. But most of the time, do you know what it usually describes? This is what's interesting. It usually describes tables, spaces, utensils, things, right? The holy tabernacle. Exactly, right? If our idea of holy is only being moral, how would we describe a day as holy? In other words, when God said, the seventh day is to be holy. Or an ark. Is the ark moral or immoral? That's a stupid question. It's neither, right? Is there a moral piece of land? Is there a moral table? Is there a moral, you know, a day is moral? No, but you're right. It's set apart. It has to be more than morality, but not less than morality, if that makes sense. Because ultimately, you know, when Moses is talking about this, Moses understands he's talking about set apart things. And when God, and certainly God knows that Moses understands that, and when the Lord says to Moses, be holy because I am holy, I don't think Moses understood that solely at the level of morality, even though it certainly encompasses that, but he understands it as being set apart to God to fulfill his purposes with your life. Absolutely. And it also is important in 19.2, it says, speak to the entire assembly of the children of Israel. In other words, this includes everybody. It's the men, it's the women, it's the children. It's absolutely everybody. The entire assembly together has to hear these words and commit to being holy like God. Now, the other thing it says is, it doesn't say be holy when you're in church or be holy when you're in synagogue. And when you're not in church, you don't have to be. No, no, no. It's the entire assembly be holy without any distinctions about when and where, no time, place, manner restrictions. It's just be holy. That's who you have to be. You have to be holy. Whether you're at home, whether you're walk on your way, whether you're in the house of worship, it doesn't matter. You got to be holy. That's an excellent insight. And because someone can be, and this is why we understand that holiness has to be about more than morality. Yeah. Give me an example of that. Well, people have lots of reasons for choosing moral behavior. They want to be viewed with respect. It makes them feel good about themselves. It's an expectation for their family name to make good choices in their behavior. It's good for business, right? To make good moral decisions is good for business. Right. I mean, you know, Fukuyama said you had a book called Trust the Social Basis of Prosperity. Yeah. So you can make those choices not based in holiness per se. It could actually be more self-interested. People would still say those are the right choices to make. Those are moral choices to make. But it may not be for people that they're basing this in holiness because God is holy. Well, that's such a brilliant insight you have because so many people, I think, get it wrong when they say Judaism is a religion of action. Now, of course, in many respects it is, but not entirely because the Talmud and the Psalms and all of Jewish teaching and the Torah make clear, I believe, in the Talmud and or the Psalms, God wants the heart. I mean, it's commanded over and over again in Deuteronomy and elsewhere that you are to love God. God wants the heart. God wants us to do things with kavanah, with meaning. Of course, the actions are important, but so is the character. Exactly right. 
I mean, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? That's the point when God says to David, everybody else looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. That's it. That's where it's from. Exactly. God wants the heart. God wants us to be holy. That's right. God doesn't say, I'm just going to observe your actions and judge what you do. That's part of it. He said that, yes, you have to do that. That's part of it. But the whole thing, God wants the heart. That's exactly right. And speaking of 1 Samuel, where David has talked about, Hannah, what a beautiful story that is, right? In uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2-ish, I think 1 Samuel chapter 2, the beautiful story of Hannah, who ends up setting apart Samuel for God, and then prays this prayer, this beautiful prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2, where she says, there is no one holy like the Lord, there is no one besides you. And when she's saying that, it's interesting because she is setting apart her son for the set-apart God. It's like this double idea, this double kind of meaning of holiness. She set apart Samuel, which means the Lord hears, right? She sets apart Samuel for the set-apart God. She makes Samuel holy, set apart for a holy God. And it's a beautiful picture because it kind of reminds me that when we get to this vision of God that we see that he says, I am holy, and then we hear Hannah saying, you know, there's no one holy like the Lord. There's no one besides you. That means that God, first of all, is uniquely holy. Like there's no one like him. He is by himself in that regard. But it's also the idea of holiness is more worship than just words. Because it also says that, you know, I think Hannah actually says that no one is holy like the Lord and by him deeds are weighed. So in other words, the holy kind of the the call on our own humanness to act in ways that are consistent with holiness is something that we can see. Here's what I think is interesting, Mark, and this is why I said earlier that I think holiness is more essence than attribute. Because what you don't hear when you see the grand vision of Isaiah, you know, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, right? And the train of his robe filled the temple in Isaiah chapter 6. Or if you read in the New Testament in Revelation 20, Revelation chapter 4, which is a, a similar picture, right? It's a similar picture to Isaiah's vision, kind of into the throne room, so to speak. What the angels aren't saying is love, 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 good, 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 righteous, righteous, righteous. What they are saying is holy, holy, holy because this is about the essence of who God is more than it is just about the attributes that God has, because his holiness, his essence, makes his attributes stand apart based upon who he is. That's right. His essence informs and constructs his attributes. Now, how would you respond if, let's say, your church came to you institutionally and said, Pastor, we'd like you to give a sermon six weeks from now on the subject of how we can be holy, specifically how we can live in accordance with Leviticus 19.2. And that would incorporate, of course, how we're not and how we should. That's great. I mean, I have preached in Leviticus, by the way. Some people think that kind of Christians only spend all of their time in the New Testament. But the interesting thing about the New Testament is how much Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament, particularly, by the way, when you're reading Peter. In 1 Peter, you can hardly walk through 1 Peter, I'm talking about any paragraph at all, where he's either not directly quoting from the Torah specifically, often in Leviticus, in fact, he directly quotes Leviticus 19, or is giving you allusion to the story of Israel. I mean, it's like all through. Now, again, Peter was a Jew, so why wouldn't he think these things, right? This is what he understood as the scripture itself, right? This wasn't the canon of what we call the canon of the New Testament wasn't even formulated at this point. 
He's writing thoughts that are based upon the Old Testament. So I guess what I would do if I were talking about this in my context is that I would talk about all the things that I've just talked about with you, about the nature defining what holiness is, understanding what that is, that it has to be a little bit bigger than morality. It's about belonging to God, but then coming to a place where we realize that that idea presents us from a Christian perspective, because you were asking me about what I would do with it, that it presents us with some tensions, that if God's holiness makes a claim on us, and we're to be holy, that means that we're to be moral and right living, but it means we also must belong to God for that to be even the case. And so the writer of Hebrews, like in Hebrews chapter 12, again, in the New Testament, says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Okay, that's a stark statement to make, right? Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And since our sin, the way that we would view this uh, from a Christian perspective, since our sin has separated us from God, it will take the one separate from us to actually initiate our way to be able to belong to him, which is obviously where we talk about the good news of who we believe Jesus to be as that opportunity for us in Jesus to find what reconciliation with a holy God looks like that God initiated that we could never. And so the idea there is that even with the birth narratives of Jesus and Mary, and she actually says in Luke 1, or the angel does, the holy one to be born to you, the one set apart, you know? And then when we read through Luke, the demons actually knew who Jesus was, and they would say, we know who you are, you're the holy one of God. And then the writer of Hebrews tells us that the death of the Holy One is how we can be made holy. Hebrews 13 in the New Testament says, make the people holy through his own blood, the blood that was shed. In other words, the picture of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament kind of fulfilled, so to speak, in what we would call Messiah Jesus in the New Testament. So that's probably how I would approach that generally, if that's fair. Right. Absolutely. Now, if somebody said, Drilling down even deeper, if they said, you know, in the spirit of the question to Rabbi Hillel, who was asked to give the meaning of the Torah while standing on one foot, if someone said, all right, how should this passage change my life on Tuesday? You know, I think that's what the Torah is about. I think the Torah is about changing our life on Tuesday. In order to understand the book, I think the first question you have to ask is, what is the genre of the book? And if you think the genre is a history book, I'm thinking of the Torah, I think the genre is a history book or a cookbook or a law book. You're going to get it wrong. It's a guidebook. Torah means in the Hebrew instruction. It's supposed to instruct us, to teach us, and to guide us as to how to live better, happier, and more meaningful and more holy lives today. So I think that is the fundamental question for almost any passage, particularly one as monumental as this is, how should it change my Tuesday? Yep. So maybe if I summed it up in one statement, it would be, and this is going to be because I have a tendency to bend toward the theological. It might bend this way, but, but I will tell you the practical from it. God's holiness belongs only to himself, and our holiness is in only belonging to God. So what I would do is I would begin to unpack that by saying, think about it this way. What's the opposite of belonging to God? It would be belonging to self. Right. That's the only alternative for a free person. Right. Yeah. So nobody who just belongs to themselves has a chance at holiness at that point. And so that's where I would begin to unpack that a little bit. And I would obviously use 1 Peter chapter 2, which I referenced earlier, he quotes the very same passage. He says, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. He actually quotes it directly, and he kind of talks to them about the negative side of holiness because the negative side is separate from the following things and then be separated to the beauty of who God is, right? 
And Peter actually walks through one, two, three, four, five things in First Peter. He says, you've got to do away with, he says, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And you know what's interesting about that, Mark, is that when he's using that list, he's actually calling from the story of Israel. He's saying, you got to do away with malice, kind of like, let's go back to Egypt and leave stupid Moses. Let's do away with deceit, kind of like when Aaron and the golden calf, you know, when they said, I just came out of the fire that way, right? Well, let's do away with hypocrisy, which was, isn't it interesting that the great monotheistic culture is worshiping a golden calf? Let's do away with envy. Why should Moses be the only prophet? You know, things like that. Or let's do away with slander, all their complaining and gossiping and backbiting against Moses. So he actually calls upon the history and the story of Israel to be able to unpack the reality of what he's saying specifically that's going to benefit them on Tuesday. I love your notion of asking the question. Maybe it's when you wake up in the morning, ask the question, who am I owned by, God or me? Because every free person has to ask that question. Am I owned by God or am I owned by myself. And if I choose to say I'm owned by God, because one has to choose, if I choose to say I'm owned by God, then I'm owned by God. So what would God do with me today? Can't be that hard to figure out how to be holy or else we wouldn't be instructed to do it. God would never give us an instruction that we couldn't figure out how to pull it off. That would be ridiculous. And God is not ridiculous. <laughs> Agreed. That's a great frame right there. God is not ridiculous. That's a, a great frame to look through. And the way that we would say it as kind of Christian people is that we would say that the power and the grace of God that is active in our life by His Spirit is what enables us to be able to do these very things. It's not so much this idea of we on our own volition are trying to develop the moral fortitude to meet every single standard that we already know is impossible for us to do, but instead that by God's grace, He has given to us His Spirit to dwell within us that by his spirit, we now have the power to not just fulfill the law, but to actually in heart and in word and indeed go beyond it. That's what Jesus was actually, again, from a New Testament perspective, when he taught this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. Some people call it the Discourse on the Hill, wherever. And I've been there many times. I've done nine teaching tours in Israel and absolutely love it. I want to be in your next one. Wow. Man, listen, I would love for you to be there. You'd help the conversation. But being there, right there at the base of the hill where the Sermon on the Mount, or at least in that general vicinity, where the Sermon on the Mount occurred, Jesus was saying things like, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy, which by the way, was never said in the Torah. That's not what was said, right? He was just saying, you've heard it said. He didn't say, Moses said. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Right, right. He said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. You know, he starts giving this additional commentary, which is really about kind of the beauty of his power to not only help us fulfill what God's heart is, the intent of the law, which is ultimately for us to be a holy people, to be a distinct people, right? That's the heart. That's the intent that we have this loving relationship where we've said, God, we're yours. We're yours. So we want to love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. And we're asking you to give us the grace to be able to fulfill living in such a way that brings you glory, right? That's kind of what we're after. Absolutely. Beautiful. Jerry, thank you so much. Such a fascinating discussion stemming from Leviticus 19.1. Now, the uh, concluding question always goes from one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is um, Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he says on the first page, he said, I just ran into this man with whom I served in the war. 
And he said, this man saved a lot of Jews and then became a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there's no such thing as a grown-up person. (laughs) Oh, that's great. I think so. Absolutely. So in all your years of being a pastor, not exactly hearing confessions, but hearing people in their vulnerable moments, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? Yeah, that's a great question. So the very simple statement would be this. There is a God and I'm not him. It's very clear to me that there's a God and that it's not me, right? Those, those are two things from the human experience. And so everybody that I talk to would fall into that category. They kind of recognize, even if they claim to, I've not met many true atheists. I've met some that claim to be in name. There are some, but I haven't met too many true atheists. I totally agree. Agnostics, yes. Maybe. Right, maybe. Because, you know, the fastest growing religion, if one dignifies it by calling it a religion in America today, is Wiccans. Witches. There are now one million witches, up from like a couple tens of thousands 15 years ago. And these are all people, presumably, who say they're atheists, agnostic. They certainly rejected religion. Meanwhile, you look at what they do. And not only just them, but lots of other quasi-religions, people who reject religion, what do they do? They have something that looks a lot like ritual. They have a body of thought that looks a lot like dogma. Some of them have a notion of heretics and blasphemers, and then they worship something. And so there are very few, if any, atheists. I think you're exactly right. Yeah. And ultimately, it's interesting to me because that's revealed because people oftentimes who are claiming to be atheists are so emotionally angry at a God that they say they don't believe in. I have trouble sometimes, you know, wrapping my head around that. I'm thinking to myself, why are you so emotional in this conversation? Because you say that you don't even think that he exists, but you're angry at the fact that maybe I do or whatever, right? Like I'm not angry about your atheism, but you're angry about my theism, which seems kind of odd to me if you don't even believe that he exists. Like I, if I knew that the cookie monster wasn't real at all and someone was flipping out about the cookie monster, I would be like, hey man, like, take it easy. The cookie monster's not a thing. Like, it's not real. Everything's okay. I wouldn't hate the cookie monster. That's right. I wouldn't hate the cookie monster, nor would I be really tied up emotionally in the cookie monster. I would just be like, hey, man, take it easy, right? That's all. So those are two kind of things. I, I would say this from the kind of counseling with people, which I don't do a ton of. We've got other people better at that than I. But one of the things that I learned that what stems from a lot of the problems is either people have, and this goes to your two question. Either people have a broken view of God or a broken view of who they are in God. What do you mean by that? Well, a broken view of God simply meaning that they've created a God maybe in their own image, as opposed to how God has revealed himself very specifically in the scripture itself. And so they've made up this God in their head. And when that God doesn't meet their expectations, they're really upset about it. And they feel like he's departed and left and all those kinds of things when they haven't paid attention to how God has actually... So is this kind of the God is ATM machine theory where, you know, you give a prayer, you hit in the code and out should come the results of your prayer. You, instead of the code and cash, you have a prayer and some result that doesn't work that way. And Right. Like he's a cosmic bellhop or something, right? You know, that a lot of people have a wrong idea of who God is. And then as a result, they form their own identity around a wrong idea of who God is, which gives them a wrong idea of who they are as human beings, right? And so they could come to a place of saying, well, if God hasn't paid any attention to me, then maybe I'm not a person of dignity. Maybe I'm not a person that should be paid attention to, when in fact, God has already revealed who he is, how much he cares, 
And he's already established the fact that human beings have been made in his image and therefore are worthy of value and worthy of dignity and worthy to be treated with respect and those kinds of things. And so people have this kind of warped identity as a result of a warped understanding of creating God in their own image and by their own expectation. Very interesting. So it's when people think of God as kind of a, a great American diner that has everything on the menu and you, you order one of literally the hundred things on the menu. These diners are incredible. I don't know how they do it, but they could literally be a hundred items. So you say, I just want these two things and you expect it from God and there's no good reason why you're not getting it. I mean, it's reasonable, but you don't get it. And therefore you think, like the diners failed. <laughs> exactly. In fact, it's one's conception of God that's failed because God has a plan. We have a mission. God has a plan. It's our job to figure out what our mission is. And it says in the Bible, you'll know me by my back. You don't know God's plan up front. Otherwise, what would be the point of faith? You wouldn't have to have any faith. Exactly right. Great insight. Well, thank you so much for such a fascinating discussion. Yes, my pleasure. Thank you. 